from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, however you define that, your community, however you define that, your private self, that's your mind, your body, your spirit, that's what makes you distinctive as an individual. How do you bring those pieces together in these tumultuous times? That's the question we're here to address. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program way back in 1991. I run a management consulting and training company called Total Leadership, and you can find out about our services that help people and organizations create greater harmony, a little less stress, and improved performance in all parts of life. Yes, folks, it can be done. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, assessment tools, and more. Find them at totalleadership.org. Now, this show, uh, new episodes of it premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. You can follow me at Stu Friedman. All right. Well, I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation for a long time. Uh, many of us, continue to work from home, we're fortunate in that sense, uh, during the pandemic as it rages on. We are recording now in mid-July 2020. My guest today says that this working notion of working from home presents unique challenges for people of color. She's the author of a Harvard Business Review article called Working From Home While Black, just one of the many really important pieces on diversity and inclusion that she's authored both before and during this crisis. If you are listening today, uh, it's July 16th. You go to the harvardbusinessreview.org site. She's got the lead article there. We're going to be talking about that as well. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, who's a professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, to today's program. Laura, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much, Stu. Looking forward to the conversation today. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me tell listeners a little bit more about you before we get into the conversation. Laura is an innovative global scholar and consultant on the science of maximizing human potential in diverse organizations and communities. She's published over 50 research articles, teaching cases, and practitioner-oriented tools for strategically activating best selves through strength-based development. And we're going to be talking about one of the tools that she's developed for that purpose that anyone can use. And through workplace equity and, and, and inclusion, which is perhaps the most important issue facing uh, organizations in America today. Laura is also a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and the Academy Management Review, other journals, her influential publications and presentations on diversity, authenticity, and leadership development have been recognized by Thinkers 50. She's on the radar uh, as of last year and by the Academy of Management. She is the 2020 inaugural recipient of the Academy of Management Organizational Behavior Award for Societal Impact. Way to go, Laura. That's awesome. She's edited three books, Race, Work, and Leadership, Positive Organizing in a Global Society, and Exploring Positive Identities and Organizations. Lastly, let me just say, Laura is a distinguished graduate of the Organizational Psychology Program at the University of Michigan, where I, too, graduated from a few years before Laura. Go below. Actually, 17 years prior, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is also the place from which our brand new dean at the Wharton School, Erica James, also graduated, I'm very happy to say. All right, Laura, uh, it's really great to have you here. I'm sure you must be in very high demand these days. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us. You know, the, the coronavirus pandemic has disrupted life for everyone. Uh, and 
many people have been suddenly forced to work remotely from home while trying to educate their kids and without the support that they were haven't been accustomed to getting from schools, childcare providers, from family and community. Others have lost jobs or been forced to work in conditions that are uh, potentially dangerous to them and their families. <clears throat> Schools, things like summer camps, vast swaths of our economy have been shuttered. Uh, there's no one really who's been exempt. And yet people of color, blacks in America, have been once again hit the hardest, both in terms of numbers of people, percentages of people falling victim to the virus itself and to its economic impact. Now, you've written a piece, there's so much that you've written about that I want to talk about, but I want to start with this one uh, that really caught so much attention. Uh, another way that, that black and brown people have been hit harder by the pandemic is what it means for them to be working from home can you explain the big idea in that piece and particularly what code switching uh, and implicit bias means as it's playing out in our current work and social environment? Yeah, let's start, Sue, by, Sue, by taking the, um, the language of sort of sheltering in place, which is t what brought us into this aura of working from home, learning from home, exercising from home, entertaining from home, cooking from home, everything from home base. But the concept is there that we did that because home represented a safe haven mm -hmm. for millions and millions of people. And outside of the home, there was potential exposure to uh, life altering or life ending toxin, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Our article the piece with Courtney McClooney on working from home while black amplifies the ways in which home has reflected a safe haven for black people and for other people of color when the workplaces have not been as hospitable toward them, when going to work has been another way of exposing yourself to the toxin or the risks and the dangers of racism that could impact your life, it could impact your livelihood, right? Mm -hmm. So code switching is the strategic tactic that black people and many other marginalized groups adopt where they express their full cultural authentic selves in those safe spaces, the home life, the personal life, the social life, and then they switch the code they use a different language, they express the different values, the cultural behaviors and styles through the way you talk, the way you dress, the kinds of social activities that you participate in at work with your coworkers. So Those align more with the majority or the dominant group. Mm -hmm. At home, you switch the code and you engage in those more authentic, familiar tactics. Now, that are not happening from work. Right. It's not the safe haven anymore. Now you've got your workers beaming into your home, too. Code switching is disrupted. Code switching is disrupted in the sense that you, you can no longer turn off your, the self that you are able to express when you're privately in your own home because now it's exposed. I can see the stuff that's on your walls. I can see the way you're dressing when you're relaxed at home, you know, the way you're, uh, the way you appear in, in, in relaxed clothing. And all of those are signals, right? They're cultural artifacts that are signals to a different you. It is. And it's, it's nuanced and because, you know, everybody like puts on some kind of uniform or some professional self mm -hmm. when they go into their workspaces. And we kind of want that in our organizations. Like we don't want everybody to come and let it all hang out in the context of work because definitely that, not. Definitely not. Okay, so we'll just leave that right there. But <laughs> So, so, you know, boundaries are good. Boundaries are good. We need um, boundaries. <laughs> but 
But the kind of code switching that uh, black people and members of other marginalized groups usually have to engage in can become quite stressful and taxing because it involves a level of suppression of the self and assimilation, you know, trying to pretend that you fit in or you conform in ways that just feel fundamentally uncomfortable or, or maybe a violation of self. So you would think then, now if I have to code switch less because every the boundaries are gone, like work is home and home is work, then that should be better. Oh, I should be better off, right? Now I don't have to deal with the stress of getting dressed, going into that space, doing putting the mask on, and yeah, what yeah. that takes. Right, right. But Courtney McClooney and I are saying, guess what? There's a different kind of stress that now enters onto the scene because, like you said, now you have this access. You, my professional world has this access to my private world mm -hmm. and because of the cultural stereotypes that are so pronounced in our society we make a lot of judgments about people's private lives and we make some faulty associations between what we might see in their personal space and what they're capable of can you give an example of that so we've talked about, let's give a, a gendered example, because, you know, many of the listeners can probably relate to this. Um, so you're the same human. You have the same brain that you had on March 16th, 2020. But now it's like April 15th, 2020. And you have young kids at home and that whole sit in the corner and do your Zoom class is like they're over it. So in the middle of your meetings, they're running in and out. You're like talking to them. There's a scream in the background when you're making a huge impactful point and all of a sudden that potentially changes the way that your coworkers look at you and think about you. All Why of a can't sudden, you keep your child quiet? What's your problem? There you go. I thought bad you were mother. top of things. I thought you were so put together. What's going on over there? That, Do you need to go attend to that? Does, you know? <laughs> is that interpreted differently for, for women of color than it is for for white women? It is, and this is where the unconscious biases and the systemic racism come into play. So the unconscious biases are that we make assumptions about who should be responsible for caregiving, and those assumptions um, are often correlated with gender. So women, should be more responsible for caregiving. Therefore, if the kid is screaming, then the woman is failing in her responsibilities. Mm -hmm. the, the man who could be the father, or the, you know, the co-parent, the kid is screaming, he doesn't get as much of a hit. It might, might be like, oh, wow, Stu, look at you in there helping out. I'm and, the hero oh, dad. You're the hero dad. I, that, those are unconscious associations. Thanks. For many people, for but some, is, very overt. Is it worse at the intersection of of gender and race? It is. It and, is. And why is that? What is? What's the extra burden in this intersectional note node of being both a mother and a, a person of color that adds additional uh, weight? So I'll give two explanations. One that. Women of color are disproportionately represented in caregiving occupations. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about your household responsibility and the gender norms about what happens in your household, but it's in society, in the U.S., for example, over the past 400 years, women of color have been in the care domestic caregiving roles, not just for themselves, but for other families and households too. So that association about you should be or have this responsibility for caregiving is even stronger for women of color mm -hmm. than it is for white women. There's also that- um, So that, let me just underscore that. So therefore, if there's an interruption from an unruly child, the uh, the 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 implicit or unconscious inference from that is a, a greater uh, sort of negative judgment about that person in terms of the the non-work role that they ought to be playing. Is that right? That is right. There is also, and this gets this is kind of deep and layered, Stu. But there is also um, ample evidence that shows that. Black children 
are judged more harshly when they misbehave mm -hmm. than their white counterparts. Black children at the age of three are significantly more likely to get suspended from preschool. Who gets suspended from preschool? So it's all of these unconscious biases about criminality and deviant behavior and who's out of control or what's out of control. You know, that's all getting triggered as well when people are examining and evaluating some of these household dynamics. But again, lots of unconscious dynamics there for folks. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, who's professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, and she is a leading expert on race, work, and leadership. And we're talking about her you know, bunch of significant articles in the Harvard Business Review right now. Uh, this is about working from home while black and the ways in which there's additional stress uh, for people of color, for black people to, to not have the shelter of their homes, right? That's, that's the problem. So, so what to do? What to do? Um, it's what to do like an ongoing basis and then like there's what to do in the crisis. So we're writing this article in the middle of a global pandemic that hasn't occurred in a hundred years and everybody's world got turned upside down in a week. And you know, there was no routine shoot. There was no toilet paper. Okay. People were concerned about how they were that. like, we were there, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And so people were really concerned about how they were just going to make it day to day. And there were a number of factors that required all managers to be more compassionate and more flexible and more agile in many of their expectations. Uh -huh. So this whole norm toward presenteeism and just suggesting that you need to show up, you need to have FaceTime, you should be available on the spot. If I need to run something by you at 10 o'clock, typically we would be in the office. So if you're still getting paid and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, you need to be on call. Chop, oh. chop, you know, I need to be able to answer, uh, to reach you right at that moment. And so Courtney and I were first saying, hey, you, you need to like reset some of those expectations about work and life and how these two sectors are now fundamentally intertwined. And we all have to be more understanding of that. And we're also in a moment of crisis where folks are trying to develop new strategies and new routines and figure out how to teach their kid first grade when that's not something that they had ever done before. Fair game. For all all parents. And that's for all parents. That's for all parents. So a lot of our advice um, is saying when you look at what's happening with black people working from home, that's the minor's canary. You know, some of the judgments are most intense and some of the discomfort is even more intense for black workers. But what managers can do to create high quality engagement and more flexible, adaptive work environments, this is going to benefit everybody especially in, in the middle of these, these new experiments about how we design work. So, so, that, so that was one. Another, we thought small, we thought about some of the small tactical things you could do on a regular basis, like honor your start times and end times for meetings. Um, if you want to have a time of day where people are available for pop-ins, then set that in advance. You know, just don't expect that you'd be able to drop by just like you wouldn't drop by your coworkers' home on any given occasion. And they're not in the office, even though they're still on the payroll. We talked about virtual backgrounds. Um, this is something that I know a lot of our schools are doing. You, you guys are probably doing it now. I know Darden, we're, we're getting ours ready for the fall. Let's get a standard virtual background for all of our learners that has their name in the same font, big letters, and then it's a uniform background. So we're not having to put people in a position where they have to make a choice. Do I show my bookshelf or not? Do I show my wall art or not? Can I show them I'm sitting in the bathroom or sitting on my bed while I'm in class or not? You're just, you're or, taking- you know, the ocean side behind me because I live on a, you know, $14 million estate. Uh, there you go. Being in a basement apartment somewhere in the Bronx. There you go. So yeah, social class is a huge aspect of it. So we talked about race and gender. So leveling, but that. Is leveling that. Leveling mm -hmm. that. Is is that is that happening now? Because you know what's what's so interesting about this, Laura, is that one of the early observations that I saw and and heard people talking about was the 
you know, the opening of the home space as a good thing in the sense that more of the, the whole person is exposed in ways that are now normalized. Like we all have weirdness in our personal lives and, you know, you can see me and I can see you. And the more we can see of each other, the, the more we understand and trust each other as human beings and are able to create, you know, more, well, authentic social bonds in our work exchanges. And that's a good thing, right? But you're, what you're arguing is that it cuts, it cuts both ways. It cuts both ways. Right. It cuts both ways. I mean, it is a good thing to form those authentic relationships and find ways to be more seen and heard and understood. But the double-edged sword is, you know, you're also being evaluated right. as a high potential leader. You know, do you, is it, which of the people on my team, who are the ones that I can count on in this moment? Who are my go-tos? Who are the ones who I feel like, oh yeah, Stu's got a set, I could see him in our C-suite in another 15 years. Not necessarily if I have straight out of Compton on my bookshelf behind me as, as the last video that I watched. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, it depends on personal taste. <laughs> well, but and that's perhaps a bad example. But you know, the notion is that if you, you know, if there are aspects of who I am, you that know, signaling that that could be what I'm sorry. Say it again. Signaling. You're saying those aspects of who you are, they're, they're signaling different things about your culture, about your preferences, about your affiliations, about your values. Exactly. Some of it's personal taste, right? Of course. Um, but sometimes, like, white guys get cool points for liking hip-hop. True. That's that was a, a doubly bad example. Oh, my God. You know? But for me, it's an asset. You might get some cool points for that. Of course I would. See, there's my privilege operating. I didn't even, I'm thinking of that as something that would be a, a negative for you, right? Exactly. Or, or especially if you were a black man, you know, that that, right. that would signal, oh, you know, that means attitude. That means, you know, threat. Um, whereas for me, I get, I would get cool points for that. That's so interesting. So we have, so instead of having to manage all that and stress about, oh my gosh, what do I show? What books, you know, is, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass is okay, but it's James Baldwin, Malcolm X. I don't know. Yeah, one of my students had Ahmaud Aubrey as his um, Zoom backdrop a couple of months ago, and because I was the professor, and it was a course on leading teams in executive MBA program that opened up the door for us to have a rich conversation. Right. But I was the only professor who said anything about it or who invited the conversation. Clearly, he wanted that. <sighs> recognize and acknowledge yes. he had made an intentional choice of course but everybody's not suppressing you know some people are being very strategic about what they show yeah um we, most of us are yeah yeah but you, what you're suggesting is that the the costs outweigh the benefits of that kind of signaling and exposure and and instead it should be just a universal this is our sort of corporate or organizational image and and we're not going to differentiate who we are as individuals by our backgrounds. Is, is that what you're suggesting is, is best practice to alleviate the strain of uh, having to code switch? I'm trying to um, recommend practices that support the people who are most vulnerable within the organization, the person who might feel most insecure about their home environment in this case Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily have to be a black woman i have i'm very comfortable with my space i'm a quite privileged black woman from a social class standpoint so i could get my setup just the way i want it but many of my students many of which would be white men could feel who i've seen in the bathroom and sitting on their beds and you know other things while they're attending class and that may not be as comfortable for them either. So I think when we're developing these policies, we want to think about how do we create the safest environment so that people who are most vulnerable will have the tools that they need to be able to engage fully. Um, we want people to differentiate. We want people to be positive deviants. Bring your ideas. Bring your suggestions. Tell us about your culture and background. But we don't you feel like you don't have any choice or agency. Mm-hmm. around how you share yourself with 
your colleagues. That's the key, isn't it? Is is the control that you have over the display of who you want to be known as with people at work, where for people of color, uh, and perhaps in a different way for women of color, there are, you know, severe pressures to show up in a certain way that might not be who you are outside of work. Hair was one example. This was another one that was like super subtle. So I, I know for many people, they don't think about these sets of choices or options. They're like, what? Get a suit. Cool. I like the suit. Put on the suit. Brush my hair. Go into the office. Done. Done. <laughs> but for for black women and black men, when those beauty salons and barbershops shut down, and then you had that six-week stretch or so where folks were like, Mm, okay. What do, I, what do I do? I've got the curly hair. I've got the facial hair. I've got, you know, there are different display signals right now. About oh my gosh. Yeah. I want to hear more about this. And I know listeners do too, but we have to take a short break. So please uh, allow me uh, just a, a, a minute here. Don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with the uh, amazing Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, uh, leading expert on race work and leadership in America. And we're going to be talking more about what to do with your hair and other things that are real personal when you're showing up while working at home while black. I am Stu Friedman, and this is Work in Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, who's a professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and who is a leading thinker on race, work, and leadership. And uh, just before the break, Laura, we were talking about uh, things like how you present yourself and how in the early days of the pandemic, um, you know, our, well, hair started to become like a question. So how, do, what, what if a coworker you're on and, and, you know, like your hair is just wild and out of control or so it seems that's my words uh, to, you know, to, to a coworker and they say something like, Hey, your hair is wild today. Um, what do you do with that? That well, So that one is like so hard hitting um, that it's kind of easy to say, well, gosh, what are you trying to say? You know, well, my hair looks wild. What, you know, how do you define wild? That is, there's very, there's very little subtlety or nuance in a comment like that. What people often get around hair is like a translation of your hair looks wild, but it's a little more subtle. So it's kind of like, oh, wow, you did something new with your hair. Oh, I see you got big hair today. Big hair. That means the person on the receiving end, like, is this a compliment? Is this an insult? Is this a comment that they're making to call attention to something that's different about me because of my race? Uh -huh. You know, something that I can't really control the way that my hair grows out of my head. And now all of a sudden, this has become a topic of conversation. Work from home or not, Stu, that happens on a regular basis. Those kinds of interactions are called microaggressions. And what people experience on the receiving end of a microaggression is a true dilemma. Like, do I call attention to this, to the microaggression or not? Do I communicate to this person that I thought what they said was uh, stereotypical or, you know, insulting or offensive in some way? Uh, and if I do, how do I say that in a way that doesn't make them feel like I just called them racist mm. or sexist or something horrible? And because if I call them that, then that's going to be backlash on me, then I'll be worse off. So maybe I'm better just letting them insult my hair and walk away than calling them out on it. And then I get insulted for being angry or defensive or, you right. know agitator what's the cost of the letting go strategy 
the cost of the letting go strategy is that you just described the one like screw it that you know that's their problem i'm not going to let that bother me i'm going to go about my business right if you can walk away with that in peace then you're good if you are if it's eating you up right? If it's something that you're ruminating of, you're playing it over and over in your mind, you're trying to figure out, was it ill-intentioned or not? You know, can I trust this person from this point on or not? Then it becomes emotionally taxing and cognitively taxing, and it can compromise your well-being. So Daryl Sue at Columbia has done a lot of research on the impact of microaggressions and racial microaggressions in particular, and has found that they do have um, a negative impact on health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Very stressful Mm -hmm. to just hold it in and continue trying to make sense of it day in and day out. So if it's something that one is ruminating about, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be distracting, it's going to cause strain and, and result in negative health outcomes. What are, what are some other approaches? So some, some other approaches are to either um, respond in the moment mm-hmm. or to uh, pause, you know, let yourself... So cool down for a minute, process, get your language and your framing together, and then, you know, initiate a conversation with that person at some point in the future. Um, We lay out those three strategies in an article on confronting microaggressions that um, my co-authors on that piece are Ella Washington and Allison um, Hall-Birch. So if you do it in the moment, it's that... You know, the first thing, like your hair is wild. That was me in the moment. Like, whoa, wait a minute. That's kind of, what did you mean by that? Uh-huh. Like that, that's a strange thing to say to somebody. That's calling it out in the moment. I meant it as a compliment, I might say. Well, there are a number of ways that someone could take a comment like that. Right, right, right. You know, and so by I understand call- you and I have a relationship but there are a number of ways that people could take a comment like that. Some people would really take that comment as an insult. I'm feeling a little insecure wow. about my hair right now oh. because this is not how I typically wear my hair. So it's like I'd rather not call attention to it. Okay. So now I'm starting to understand. I mean, now we're having a conversation about the meaning of my comment. Yeah. Yeah. So what did it take for us to have that conversation just now? It started with your telling me, hey, what do you mean by that? Inquiry, right? Your inquiry, right. I didn't jump up the ladder of inference. I didn't say, you hate black hair. You're, you're a racist. <laughs> you're a racist, right, which is all the way to the top. Right, right. No, I, didn't, I, I, mean, went I might be wondering that, but that's, that's not where I started. I started at the point of inquiry. You said this. Right. I'm confused. What did you mean by that? Right. So you invited me to then speak to what I meant. And I then claimed, well, I meant it as a compliment. And then I provided you some feedback that yes. your intention did not align with the impact. And I explained why the intention did not align with the impact first in a more generalized sense. Here's something you may not realize about race relations or about how black people feel about their hair. Mm -hmm. That's generalized. But then I personalized it as well. Here's why it's troubling for me. Yeah. You know, this is why I had a difficult time when you said that. Because, and it could be, I just picked one thing, but it, you know, there could be other things that are connected to people's personal stories then you and I are having a conversation that's building a closer relationship trust. and trust with each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we stopped it, but you know, you were inviting me to learn more uh, and, about you in a way that helped me to understand, well, who you are and how I ought to be mindful of who you are in a way that allows us to be colleagues who have mutual respect and understanding and want to, want to be working together towards a common, a common purpose. And I believe that we're both invested in doing that. 
Mm -hmm. If you were someone that I was just passing by as I was on my way, like in the olden days, pre-COVID, if I were getting on the elevator to go up to my office on the 30th floor of the office building, (laughs) <laughs> which many of us are not doing right now. Right. It's just a passerby. It's just an exchange. It's a coffee shop kind of dynamic. We're not invested in creating a more intimate or mutual exchange. So my reaction to you is going to be different because of that. Because it's, it's not going to be worth the, you won't have the time probably. And you don't have the, in, as you say, the investment in the relationship. So that's another, another variable, right? That you have to consider like, is it worth it? Is or, it worth it? How important, how important is this relationship? How, how important is, is, uh, is this person to me and vice versa? So <clears throat> this is delightfully instructive, uh, you know, on the, on the micro level about microaggressions. What about on a broader sort of cultural scale? Um, what are some of the, the big ideas that you're sharing about um, what what organizations can be doing to to enable people to uh, deal with the aggressions, micro and macro, that they experience as uh, as oppressed minorities. Yeah. So first, organizations have to become uh, more curious about how structural inequality and biases, subtle and overt, are playing out in their organizations on a daily basis. Like it's easy to release a statement that says, we stand against what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis. We stand against what Amy Cooper did in Central Park. You know, both of those involved um, interactions where with George Floyd died violently, Amy Cooper threatened to call the police, and that could have escalated into um, a tragic outcome as well, right? Um, but it's really easy to have an arm's length advocacy position around dealing with all of the problems in society out there. Mm-hmm. What organizations have to do is to become curious and courageous in interrogating what's happening in their own organizations. First, why are we silent? about so many of these dynamics. You know, a lot of the pieces that I write are just voices from the margins. Like, hey, this is what the lived experience is of folks who are in your organization who you believe you're doing your very best for them to be fully included. And they don't feel included. And this is why, this is how it's playing out for them. So as organizations are more curious about that, then they systematically gather data Mm -hmm. to examine the experiences that different people in their organizations are having, just of showing up and working and trying to get ahead. Hang on one second here. Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, speaking with Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts, who's professor of practice at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. We're talking about race, work, and leadership in America and in our organizations. So curiosity and courage is required by executives. Exactly. Uh, to, and the managers, too. To uncover what the what the real experience is like for people who would normally not have the opportunity to say what that experience is and yet most most executives most managers this is hard work for them and it doesn't come naturally and of course they're not even thinking about it because they have not felt any of those same uh microaggressions they've they've been on the giving end uh and probably don't even know it in most cases or in many cases. So how do you help bring those folks to the point of enacting that curiosity and courage about interrogating, well, who are we really in terms of how we, we are uh, enacting uh, and, and, and perhaps reinforcing racial injustice in our company? Yeah, so I've been talking to uh, senior executives, uh, middle managers, uh, 
really a lot of firm-wide fireside chats and keynotes just to try to raise the consciousness um, and help people to uh, catalyze their own internal change initiatives. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been talking about three zones of action, um, head, hands, and heart. Um, I will start with heart, though, (laughs) because I think that's where it all originates and that's how it sustains. It's hard for everybody, so it is heart work for everybody. You, You work with the folks in your organization to help them identify their why. What is your personal reason for caring about this? Why are they invested in this? What's their skin in the game? For uh, most people, they don't have any. These issues and dynamics have not touched them personally. It's just like COVID. Everybody across the globe have sacrificed, as you mentioned in the start of the call. But there are certain people who have been impacted with grief and loss on different levels. And likewise with experiences of racism and other forms of injustice and inequality. Like they undermine the work experience for everybody, but some people have been impacted more than others. So mm-hmm. you've got to help everybody like connect into that why, that care. Yes, it matters. Yes, it matters for you too. Yes, it's relevant. Then we go into the head and the hands. So the head is get the data. We talked about that some. And then the hands, all right, so what are the tools and techniques that are at my proposal? Well, this is when we start to talk about re-examining our hiring and recruiting practices, re-examining our performance evaluation practices, putting in place some benchmarks around um, increasing Uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion within the organization and choosing the benchmarks that align with your strategy and with your core values and doing some training and retraining. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's all the time. Right. And, and of course there's, you know, these are institutionally embedded uh, ideologies that take such a long time to change and, it has to come from many different sources. Um, my daughter, who is white, uh, she's a teacher in Boston. And in the early, early days of the street protests in Boston, just following the murder of George Floyd, um, she and a number of her uh, fellow teachers, white women, stood in front of their black male colleagues uh, at at one of these uh, demonstrations and was shot uh, with rubber bullets uh, in her face um, <clears throat> along with other people. She's okay now, but you know, th- this is, so there, you know, that's just an example that, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that she's doing and that she is an activist as well as a teacher and trying to make positive change happen and through, through the education system and her role as a teacher. And I don't want to spend the entire time talking about my daughter, of whom I'm so proud. But I, I do want to offer that as, you know, a, an entree to the question about what it means to be uh, supportive uh, uh, as, as, a, as, as a white person in this context. So what advice do you have uh, to us? I could not have provided a better example than the one that you just provided, Stu. When I think of metaphorically what it means to be supportive in this work, um, it means, you know, not just standing side, side by side and linking arms, but standing in front of trying to find ways to protect the people who are most vulnerable. It means on a daily basis, being more vigilant around microaggressions that can be taking place. And so when three people are in the room and one person walks in and makes a comment about somebody's hair, then that person, that black woman in the case, doesn't have to say something about it because Stu's in the room and Stu says something about it. Stu initiates that exchange. Why what do you, you mean wild? Why are you talking Why about wild? What's Where your problem? What, well, we, we went through our script now. We would oh, still oh, use oh. our script. I lost but, it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it really is about, in some moments, um, you know, stepping in front, like taking the heat, being willing to take the heat. You know, prayerfully, that doesn't 
devolve into rubber bullets. Um, that's tragic and horrifying. Uh, but there are so many moments where people have to just put their careers on the line in order to advance this work. Um, because it's not popular work in many organizations. If it right. were, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Like the issues that we're surfacing would not continue to perpetuate if DEI work were, were truly popular. It's not. It's going against the grain. So having people who are willing to do that is important. And then the second is it's same with the same theme of sacrifice. Um, we like to think about inclusion as make room at the table, i.e., scoot over and let. Laura, pull up a chair. At a certain point, you know, you can scoot over, you pull up a chair. Like when I was, uh, what, 10 years ago? No, over than that, 2007, I was a visiting professor at Wharton. Remember, I hung out there for a quarter. And that was awesome. And I was welcome to come, and I had a cool time. And I, you know, I pulled up my chair. But then when that term was over, my visiting professorship was over, then I moved on to my other full-time faculty position. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening in the rotating or revolving door process. So where am I driving here, Stu? This is not about me and Wharton. Personally, it's about Erica James and Wharton. When your dean retired from his deanship, the institution had to choose the next leader. Uh-huh. It wasn't let's recruit a so-and-so to come and be a visitor or even a fuller tenure professor. It was there is one opening for deanship. This is who we're going to bring in and put in this position. And that is the kind of moment that signals a different level of change. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's thrilling uh, to see it. What's going to sustain this moment? And make it a movement, as so many people are, you know, using that sort of construction. It's more than a moment. It's a movement. It, and, of course, this is a movement that's been in, embattled for centuries in our country. What makes this moment in this movement different? You said it's hard work a few minutes ago, and you were saying it was hard work for many people who have never thought about it before, or even though this movement has been going on, they just haven't been tuned into it. And so this is a point of awakening for them. And uh, so we've got to continue that kind of energy and dynamic. Um, It's also hard work for people who have been doing this kind of activism and advocacy and education for a long, long time um, because they are hoping, as your question uh, presents, that something different will happen this time, you know, as compared to what we often see, which is that ebb and flow, the moment, not the movement. Where Mm -hmm. I see things trickling down is uh, when the resources start to be pulled. And when diversity becomes a nice to have, not a must have. Hmm. So even in tight economic circumstances, an investment in strategic diversity, equity, and inclusion must be constant. That's what will dictate whether or not this is a moment or movement. If we continue to invest our time, our energy, and our resources into leading this work. What's, what's the most important message in your piece on truth to power, uh, speaking truth to power in terms of, uh, you know, really capitalizing on this moment of awakening? The most important piece in capitalizing the awakening. Um, so some of our some points were about framing, managing your emotions, using coalitions and allies to raise collective voice. I think we've seen all of those things. Um, one of the elements that I've tried to emphasize in the past few weeks around framing is that you can't just rely on the business case in a moment like this. When we're talking George Floyd, when we're talking rubber bullets, we've got to talk about the moral imperative to change and shift and do things differently. So that, yes, speak to the heart is, um, is probably one of the the most critical elements. Um, And then I would just add a slight subtext on that around 
continuing to invoke and a feeling or a sentiment of hope and possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, make that progress narrative front and center. Mm-hmm. Uh, articulate any changes that you have seen and help people to understand the impact of a change that they've made. If somebody spoke up in a way that touched you and moved you, wherever you are, on novice to quote-unquote expert in this space, Give people that feedback. Continue to energize mm-hmm. their efforts and attempts. It's not about being perfect. It's not about getting it right. It's about committing to lifelong learning so that we can make progress together. And, you know, I love the affirming strength-based feedback that allows people to stay energized in doing this mm-hmm. kind of hard work. Laura, uh, we have to wrap up here. Uh, I am very grateful to you for taking the time to share your wisdom and insights about these issues that are so important for us today. Your energy and uh, commitment is inspiring and highly instructive. Uh, So thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Where can listeners find out more about you and the amazing work you're doing? Uh, You can probably find most of my work at this point on LinkedIn. If you want to see more about our book, go to www.racework.leadership, all one phrase, .com. Um, And that's available for sale. My website is lauramorganroberts.com. Laura Morgan Roberts, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the show. And don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about what you've heard, you can email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I am at Stu Friedman on social. And you can find more about us at totalleadership.org. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM. 132.